Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the authors of The Civil War in Pennsylvania, Michael Krauss, David Neville, and Kenneth Turner. We are at the Heinz History Center in Pittsburgh, and we are with the authors of this book, The Civil War in Pennsylvania, A Photographic History. The authors are Michael Krauss, Ken Turner, and Dave Neville. Michael Krauss, let me start with you. How long have you been interested in the Civil War? Uh, a lot of years, since I was 10 years old. What got you started? Um, when I was 10 years old, I was playing baseball one day, and I found a an Indian stone axe, I know it's not Civil War, but I found an Indian stone axe and it opened a world of possibilities for me. Where, who were these people? Why were they in my backyard? And with that axe, I, I would transport it to museums and different places and people would look at it. And as a kid, you got some attention, but eventually ran into a teacher in our uh, junior high school system and he was a Civil War collector. And when I saw that stuff, the colors, the uniforms, the weapons, I was hypnotized. And from then on, I haven't been able to leave it. I have to ask you about the Indian Stone Axe. It, where was your backyard you were playing? In uh, Lawrence County, Pennsylvania, Newcastle. It was a 5,000-year-old um, uh, polished granite, three-quarter grooved axe. I how, still have it. How big? About this big, seven inches with a groove cut in, all the way around it. It's the beginning of my, it's my touchstone piece, you know, I just owned that longer than I've owned anything in, in my life. Was it underground or was it light? I was sticking, the back of it was sticking up and it looked unnatural when I saw it. It looked like something that wasn't a rock. So that's what drove me to pick it up. Uh, Ken Turner, how about your interest in the Civil War? Uh, mine's a little different. I started around the age of eight. I had a great, great grandmother who lived to be over a hundred years old and we all, uh, my relatives, we had to take turns staying with her. And I had ancestors in the Civil War from that side of the family. And to keep us there all night, they devised a way keeping us interested by showing us the old Civil War books and photos. And that really intrigued me, like Michael, with the blue uniforms, but it was especially those brass buttons and the Napoleonic poses and the cavalry and their chivalry and cavalry sabers as they charged. It was so exciting to me that I just wanted to do more. Then my father was a funeral director and he brought in the thing about uh, always with the elderly, people would talk about having diaries and letters from the Civil War and that developed into asking them. I wasn't the football player, you know, so <laughs> I read diaries and letters and that led to the interest that I have today. Where did your ancestors fight in the Civil War? Uh, the one was in the Western Theater in the 78th Pennsylvania, so he was a Western guy, and when he came back, uh, my family said that they couldn't hardly live with him. He was hard drinking, hard smoking, you know, took a lot to get that uh, out of him. On the other hand, the other ancestor was in the 62nd Pennsylvania from up in uh, Armstrong County near Clarion County border, and they were log cabin people and went to a 
an academy up there, and he fought in the west, in the Eastern Theater, and was at Gettysburg and had uh, wounded, got a crease in his neck, and died uh, in about 1878. Do you still have some of that stuff that was your family? Just lore? photos and a few documents, not a lot. That's part of the quest to get more. Dave Neville, what's your interest in the Civil War? Uh, well, like Mike and Ken, uh, I've had an interest early on, age eight or 10. Uh, at that point in time, was in World War II history. I had uncles that fought in World War II. My father had fought in Korea. So I began to read books at age eight or 10. But a trip to Gettysburg during the summer of 1981 with my family, uh, that sealed my interest in the Civil War. I couldn't believe that this occurred only a hundred and some odd miles away from home. And, you know, of the importance in, uh, in the history that the Battle of Gettysburg played. From, so from that moment on, I was hooked. How many times have you been to Gettysburg? Oh, it's been more than a hundred times <laughs> over the past 30 years. Why so many times? What's the purpose of going again and again? I think it's a place where you can continue to learn something every time you go. Uh, some people, of course, only have a fascination to go there once or twice, maybe three times in a lifetime. Uh, but mine just continued. I began to read more. Every time I would go there, I would learn more, come back and read more about what I just learned. So, you know, in, in the place, it's this, you get an overwhelming feeling of the historic, what happened there historically. And the fact that it happened here in our, you know, native state is a native Pennsylvanian. And its impact not only on United States history, but world history, what happened at Gettysburg. And it's just a great place. It's a great place to go yourself or take your family. When you go there now, do you have a specific agenda? Like you want to go to the Peach Orchard or you want to go this place and look at this particular intersection or rock or something? Uh, not really. Uh, you know, anymore it's just sort of just meandering about the battlefield and, uh, you know, going, maybe going to a place where I haven't visited in five or ten years. Just reacquainting, you know, myself with that area and exploring some more. So uh, I've been over most portions of the field. There's still some I haven't seen in 30 years. Mm. So that's, you know, that's how much, you know, that's how immense a place it is. And how many years it can take you to learn even a fraction of what happened there. How did you three come together to write this book? Mm. We're, all, we're all friends. I mean, we, we all are interested in Civil War photography, history. Um, Ken and I grew up in towns that were nearby, but we didn't know each other. Our fathers, ironically, knew each other. Uh, but uh, I think we, we, we just accidentally bumped into each other and developed this. Right away you can tell there's a, a passion a person has. There's levels that they're on. And, you know, Ken, um, I could tell he was, you know, an advanced collector, advanced historian, was very well read. And then he brought Dave, Ken was already friends with Dave, he brought Dave into the mix. Yes, I had met Ken in about 1989 at a Civil War show at Gettysburg. It was just wow, this chance that, you know, we ran into each other. <laughs> and, uh, you know, of course, Mike knew Ken before I knew Mike. And, uh, Make it sound like I put this whole thing together. <laughs> You're responsible. Sort of orchestrated. Yeah, yeah, Ken's responsible <laughs> it's for your this. fault. And uh, here we are, you know, 20-some years later, uh, you know, having worked together on other projects, but, of course, coming together to do this book. Five years of working on the book, we're still best friends. <laughs> How did you divide up the work? Oh. Um, I, I, we, we had to imagine what the book would look like, and that was working with um, Brian Butko here. 
you know, how, how big it would be, how many illustrations it could have, number of pages. I mean, there's some financial limitations to it. I and mean, we would have liked the book to have been five volumes and 600 pages of volume. I mean, that would be our Pennsylvania book. So, so we, what we pitched originally. Yeah, we did pitch that originally. originally yes. uh, so we had to um, pare it down and understand what the project would look like when it was done and try to cover a lot of bases. And through that, then we started plugging in um, photographs we knew that existed. Uh, we've, we saw holes that we needed to find and fill. And it started to build itself once, once we determined the direction it would go in. It began nine years ago, the idea. This thinking that we would, we would be able to write everything about Pennsylvania in the Civil War. And it, when we met with Mr. Masick here, the director at the, at the Heinz, Heinz History Center, uh, and his director of publications, Brian Butko, it became apparent to them quickly, not to us, that that wouldn't be commercially viable probably. Uh, this is still what we wanted to do. So the idea just sort of languished or lingered. And then when Civil War Pennsylvania 150 came along, the 150th anniversary, Mr. Masick thinking, I met with these three guys years ago and they could write that book. And he came up with the idea of plugging us into that and I think we owe a lot to him for that. Certainly do. So if somebody buys this book, what do they get? Well, I think what they get is a volume, 300 some odd pages with 500 photographs. Uh, the vast majority that, you know, they've never been seen before, unpublished. Uh, most have some historical merit, not only uh, the photograph themselves, but the person depicted in the photograph. Uh, it's gorgeously, Designed. put together, designed, yeah. and uh, I think the person reading this book will come away with a lot of information they never knew about Pennsylvania and the Civil War in general. What we tried to do, and Dave um, brought that up, was find photographs that have never been seen before. And, and we intersperse them with Library of Congress photos. I mean, it'd be easy to go to Library of Congress and create this book, but that's, every book is like that. But we wanted some familiar and, and put them in the context of Pennsylvania and the war and photographically. But we really wanted to find these unseen photographs, unseen faces, uh, rare views, and that's what I think a person's gonna walk away with, something that you're not gonna see anywhere else. And this is what makes this book different than any other Civil War book out there, is that if you go to the advanced collector or advanced uh, historian, they've looked at the book and they're finding pictures that they've never seen before. They're finding stories of research that they have never seen before. And it's also great for the beginner who just is beginning knowledge of Civil War. They can look at it and enjoy the pictures. It's not that deep that it's going to overwhelm them. A lot of the people that I've talked to that have bought the book, they're reading it in sections, little bits at a time. They don't even want to finish it. They want to savor it. Where'd you get the pictures? A Go well, ahead. <laughs> um, all different sources. A lot of different sources. We, we queried museums, um, asked uh, for their collections. And you know, we live in an era now where things are online and you can look at many museum collections online uh, and kind of shop through them. And then we have a network of private collections. Private collections were probably the most valuable because these guys buy them and you don't show them to anybody. So in our network, and, and all three of us are collectors and have dealt in, in photographs uh, in Civil War, uh, objects for years. So we have this great network that we were able to build on and use. How often did you come across a, something and you said, wow, you guys have got to see this? 
weekly. About every day. <laughs> really? About every day. <laughs> Maybe it, even every day. It's still happening. Even after the books. Our, yeah, even with our, within, yeah. our, within our own collections. Yeah. Like Ken Turner, of course, has a collection of maybe 5,000 Pennsylvania photographs, and some he's probably hasn't seen in years. So we would be looking for something in particular, and he'd run across something and say, wow, this is exactly what we need to show this particular point or make a particular point in our book. Mm -hmm. And then by searching through, again, various sources, uh, both private and, and institutional, the same thing would happen. We would just run across things and say, wow, this needs to be shown. Yeah, da daily, Library of Congress is almost daily putting new photos on. I mean, you have to keep checking because they're such beautiful and they're scanned at high resolution. They're just gorgeous photos. Each person would bring their own skill set to work. Uh, I would have a great photo, but I might not have seen. I know Michael, one time he showed me in this one photograph of this soldier, at the bottom underneath his chair was a sleeping cat. Yeah. I'd never seen that, and that makes it immensely interesting. But that wouldn't have, I wouldn't have looked for that myself. Did, did you write the text first and then look for a picture to match it, or did you write the... Well, it's <laughs> both ways. It went both ways, yeah. <laughs> you had a general idea with yeah. the chapter outlines, mm -hmm. what you were going to have to cover. You know, you can't change history. But you wanted to make sure that we covered the, uh, the photos were driving the text more than the text yeah. driving the photos. The outline was very important. When we all consolidated together, what do, you, what do we have to show? And, and we had to eliminate some things because there weren't good photographs or were, there were no photographs of a particular thing or they were unattainable or they cost too much money um, to, to get from an institution. So our rule was if, if there's a photo and it's great, we're going for it. One of the things that's striking about flipping through this book is the quality of some of the pictures. I mean, some of them look like they're 150 years old, but others look yeah. like they could have been taken yeah. five years ago. Uh, did you learn about the photo process and what it was of a picture that was taken in 1860 that would look like brand new today? Yeah, the process, we, we knew a lot of that before we came in. That's where our expertise was in the process and, uh, and the limitations of it and the advantages of it. And one of the, early, the advantages was if you back up a step to Daguerrean photography, the very first photos, they're, they're produced on a copper plate that's plated with silver and, and buffed to a high finish, and then it's treated with a chemical uh, exposed to light and then developed almost immediately. But because it's on a polished silver surface, there is absolutely no grain in it, absolutely no grain. If the photograph is in sharp focus, you can zoom in and see details on the buttons or there are a number of photos like a fly on a guy's head that are, it's not in our book, but we know of these yes. photos that are details. spectacular in daguerreotypes. And, 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 and that follows through through the other um, uh, types of photography, amber type, tin type. But as the exposures get shorter and as they're uh, more commercial and they're take cutting corners, you may lose a little focus, a little focal plane, but the, the, they're just absolutely crisp and beautiful images. I mean, w and, and people sat formally for them and posed. Um, so, so you do have that opportunity to get great photography. Now, if you're talking about the photo quality in the book itself, we owe a lot to our project director, who is Brian Butko, again, director of publications here at Heinz who just decided it was not going to be a book with inferior photographs in it. And he, he had the idea that the photograph has to speak for itself. It's not going to be doctored. So the entire photograph is seen there. Yeah. It's not trimmed, cut, cropped, Zoom and it's in. not artificially enhanced by computers. Right. And I think that we owe a lot to Brian for that vision. 
getting back to how the, the technology of photography at the time, how long would people have to sit for these portraits that you have in here? Well, at the time of the Civil War, exposure times were five to 30 seconds. They had greatly improved since the daguerreotype era of the 1840s and 1850s. So, uh, although they still could not move. Occasionally you'll see a photo that's blurred. That simply means the person moved, uh, or their article of clothing might have moved if it was taken outdoors. But the exposure time it was greatly lessened by the time of the Civil War. So that, that really helped uh, you know, the sitter as well as the camera operator. And you have to remember the camera is a big bulky object. It's as big as, I know the audience can't see it, but the cameras that we have in here today. And it was very hard to transport them out of the studio and use them outdoors. So and most of your images are going to be seen indoors. So no candid shots. No, no snapshots. A snapshots a thing that comes around with the brownie camera. You know, they did so. do some outdoor and they did the animals mm -hmm. and things like that. But I mean, from the invention of photography in 1839, I mean, literally within weeks of sitting at a, at a lecture by Daguerre, uh, men and women from Philadelphia had brought that technology over here, not just to the United States, but to our state. And within uh, a year, there were photography studios in even small towns of Pennsylvania. Who hired the people who took the pictures in this book? The original photographs? Yeah, how'd they make a living? Um, well, a photograph was expensive, uh, you know, especially the very early daguerreotype photos. And as the process advanced, they became cheaper. So when you're looking at daguerreotype photos, you're looking at more well-to-do sitters who are dressed in their finery and they're very portrait-like, like painting-like. But as it got cheaper, um, it got more affordable and, and you're starting to get more common type people in. They're still dressing a little nicer and whatever. And then like Ken said, when they take the camera outside, they're photographing maybe occupational uh, street scenes. Um, you get a little better slice of life and a more uh, less posed look. And, and the, so the clients, in other words, are going to be those who can afford it or the photographer himself is taking a picture for commercial exploitation. He might want to take something he could sell the public's demand for this photography, this new new thing. I mean, when they first saw a daguerreotype, some people thought they could see the soul of the person, that it was really them inside that, that uh, metal plate. Uh, the public, by the time of the Civil War, when the battles were occurring, they demanded to see bodies. They wanted to see real war photography. So we even have photographer in there that traveled with the Fifth Corps. Uh, with a, a studio that was up in the northern part of Pennsylvania, but made extra money, left his studio, and traveled with the Army. The Army also employed their own photographers to take shots and uh, do Army work, in particular at hospitals and places as, such as that. Railroads, they took pictures of railroads. And uh, so the Army and the Navy, they, they saw you know, a, a role of the photographer by you know, the early years of the Civil War. One of, one of the uh, things we were talking about was uh, their, their insatiable uh, feeling for seeing battlefield photography led to one of the important photographs that's in the book, and that's Jacob Schenkel of the 62nd Pennsylvania that was a musician, but after the Battle of Gettysburg, he was uh, assigned uh, detached duty as a hospital steward and to bury the dead. and. Uh, after the Battle of Gettysburg, most of the photographers, the photographers had all left town with the civilian populace, but the, again the public wanted to see these battlefield photographs, so they came back uh, gradually, and Peter Weaver 
the photographer was looking uh, in November, or uh, yeah, in November, and he was trying to take a photograph of the bodies on the battlefield, but most of them had been buried. And here comes uh, his other plan was if he could get somebody to pretend to be dead. So he got Jacob Schenkel and some of these guys that were on detached duty that were still in Gettysburg and act, uh, had them lay with the rifles and pretend they were dead so that they could take photographs of them. And it fooled the public, uh, but we know, we know now because his diary was discovered about 20 years ago mm-hmm. where he, he says went out to the battlefield and played dead for the photographer. I don't remember the we exact thought word. That, we thought yeah. they were dead. It was an argument. They didn't look so dead, but, but we couldn't understand, understand why. It wasn't quite right. Yeah, yeah it wasn't quite <laughs> right. You see the same person in, the, in other yeah. photographs. <laughs> and the same, it seemed like the same rifle. Yeah. But we couldn't prove it as historians, so his diary his proved diary that nailed, that was how that it. worked. Yeah. Now, of all the photographers from that era, you'll, the one you hear about is Matthew Brady. Why was Matthew Brady the famous one of all the photographers? Well, Brady himself, by the time of the Civil War, was not a camera operator. He, he had very poor eyesight. He had pretty much moved to just being the owner-operator of his two galleries, one in Washington, D.C., and one in New York. Uh, So he was more or less not the camera operator, but the publisher. And prior to the Civil War, he had taken photos of all the greats, past presidents, the Congress, senators. So his name was, you know, very well known to America. It was a trademark name. It was a trademark name. So come to the Civil War, he was in perfect position to have hundreds of thousands of new clients, potentially, and the soldiers and civilians and other people who wish to have their photos taken. Uh, And what has happened uh, in the last 150 years, Brady is, early on, was like given credit as having taken Mm -hmm. all of the photographs we see published in early books, which is just, you know, this is certainly not true. His gallery, his studio, his camera operators that he hired certainly did take the photos. But he did not. He knew how to hire some of the best photographers, yeah. and they like Alexander Gardner. Themselves later, yeah. But he took credit for their photographs. So a problem of, of perception. Now your book is called "The Civil War in Pennsylvania," and we haven't yet actually talked about what's in your book. Uh, if we're, we're, as we said, we're in uh, Pittsburgh right now at the Heinz History Center. If you were on this site in 1861, 1862, 1863, just looking around, could you have told there was a war on? Absolutely. (laughs) Sitting right across the street uh, were the Fort Pitt Foundry, which was the largest cannon manufacturer in the country, where the Fort Pitt Foundry uh, stood. And they made more than a thousand cannon during the Civil War. So if you would look right outside or across the street, you would know there was a war going on. You would see cannons and all the implements of war and and whatnot to make these, these yeah, you'd see the, the river boats piled up at the wharf, taking soldiers up and down the Mississippi. You know, this is where the soldiers in the Western Theater were Jumping coming in off and out point. of yeah, hospitals. And you would also see the arsenal at Allegheny Arsenal was in full production. That's a few miles up the road here. And certainly Wood Street and the train stations and uh, um, camps, camps uh, around town, various training camps. But soldiers getting off and on trains, uh, being transported different places. So yeah, you would see it. Um, you would see a lot of military things going on. Did they ever build any defenses around Pittsburgh or was it too far removed? Yes, they, did. they did. Yeah. Dave, do you want to talk about the Philadelphia and Pittsburgh built? Oh yeah, they, they certainly did. Uh, in June of 1863, 
with uh, Robert E. Lee's army invading uh, Pennsylvania, uh, the citizens in Pittsburgh, as well as Philadelphia and other places in the state, were concerned that they would be attacked. So local laborers, citizens, soldiers that were in the area, they began to erect breastworks and emplacements for cannons and, and that type of thing. And they were built uh, more than probably two dozen around Pittsburgh and probably a, a, you know, a like amount around Philadelphia. Fortunately, uh, none of these uh, earthworks uh, were ever attacked because <coughs> Lee, of course, went and fought the Battle of Gettysburg 150 to 180 miles away from, from Pittsburgh and, and probably 90 miles away from Philadelphia. So they were built and some still exist to this day. During the emergency of 63, uh, town was shut down and every able-bodied man was required to come out and dig those trenches. And there was some question about payment later. I mean, these guys wanted to be paid, but that's all human interest. But yeah, that was a big deal. I mean, people were really scared. Yeah, History is full of uh, stories about uh, people in civilians in Pittsburgh being able to hear the cacophony of the uh, artillery uh, Pickett's charge at Gettysburg. Is that true? Could they really have heard it for that far well, away? Well, there are theories a like lot, uh, geographical plates. I've heard uh, uh, actually from a woman whose grandfather told her, so it was a pretty close to the source, that his horses were, um, wouldn't work. They wouldn't plow that day. And you know, one might think that the plates in the earth, uh, the tremendous artillery barrage, might have vibrated. It's hard to know because it's hard to know. Yeah. There was, that's the largest artillery barrage that's ever been on the North American continent, so it can't ever be duplicated. Were, were there many uh, Southern sympathizers around this area? Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, it was a common trade with the South from yeah. Pittsburgh and Philadelphia with the seaport. You know, they were trading for cotton, getting uh, goods back, and it was very important. And many people didn't didn't want the war. They were perfectly willing to allow the South to have their freedom. Well, and we're at the head of the Mississippi here, so there was a lot of trade uh, back and forth, and there were a lot of people who had fortunes invested in, you know, Southern business or Southern trade, and were very interested in, in the South. And, you know, there were rumors of spies. Pittsburgh was uh, abuzz with those kind of things pretty often. Pretty much ended when Fort Sumter was fired upon. When they saw the, f the flag fired upon, though, that brought people to the, the, uh, more to a na national sense of protecting the Union. And on the flip side of that, were there many abolitionists around here? Now, you're writing your book about John Brown, who lived in uh, Meadville for a time. Mm -hmm. That's correct. Right. Yeah, he lived in Meadville in the early part of his life. And uh, so he had a Pennsylvania connection and, of course, uh, visited Pennsylvania many times afterward. In fact, in uh, August of 1859, a couple of months before his uh, raid on Harper's Ferry, he came to Chambersburg. Pennsylvania, and he, uh, his cache of arms were being brought there for his followers to, to have for that raid on Harper's Ferry. And he even met Frederick Douglass, the great abolitionist leader, uh, outside of Chambersburg in August of 1859, and uh, asked Douglass to actually participate in this upcoming raid. Uh, Douglass said, well, I, you know, I feel I have, you know, I, I have more to do alive than I will dead, so he sort of said, well, I think that's your thing, John Brown, although, you know, he was certainly supportive of what Brown was attempting to do. And uh, there was probably, as far as the abolitionist movement, it was, it was, it was centered in, you know, the major cities of, of Pennsylvania. Philadelphia was a hotbed of the abolitionist movement. Uh, Pittsburgh had its own. Uh, some communities south of Pittsburgh had theirs. 
And there were, of course, many other communities across the state uh, that were home of, underground, of the Underground Railroad Network, moving the slaves out of the South through Pennsylvania into New York and then eventually into Canada. So, there, you know, the abolitionist movement and those people were, were all over the state of Pennsylvania. Do each of you have your own favorite kind of off the beaten track Civil War sites in Pennsylvania? Like Gettysburg would be everybody's favorite. Mm. Are there other ones that you think are little gems that people should know about? Well, Allegheny Arsenal is a gem. Um, it's a park now, uh, and it has one of its original buildings is still there, uh, part of the um, powder magazine. It's a stone building. I think it dates roughly to 1817, 1819, something like that. Um, it's, it's a bathroom now. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> you, if you know about the arsenal and you know where it was, it was divided by Butler Street and Butler Street still runs through it. There's a school on the upper part of the grounds of the arsenal now, but behind the school, right by the armory, is a cement pond. I'm not being uh, like uh, the Beverly Hillbillies, but there's a cement pond. At one time that was a spring or a naturally fed pond. And beside that were what they called the laboratories where women rolled cartridges. And on September 17th, 1862, it blew up. And today there's a baseball field right there. And you know, it's like nothing ever happened. And I drive by there every day on the way to work and I always turn my head and look and I know, you know, I can imagine those buildings there and, and what was there. I want to ask about a picture in your book yeah. that's an illustration from Harper's Weekly. It's the Arsenal Girls. Yes. And did, was that similar to what happened in World War II where the men were off fighting and the women were yeah. in Yeah, it was similar to that, yeah. Uh, and it was an opportunity for women in the Civil War because um, their men were away. They could earn a living here. Uh, and, and it was thought that they had better um, fine motor skills. They could, you know, sew and things, but they could roll cartridges and tie them. It was a very intricate process. And um, they liked know, to use the young girls because yeah. they, they thought that that would be less of a risk of of uh, explosion. That they were were more caring, and their small fingers would do it better. Ken, you have a favorite off the beaten path site? Ah, uh, my latest interest has been the build up to the Battle of Gettysburg and the retreat from. So, and the retreat from would be like the battle uh, skirmish at Monterey Pass up in the big hill, hill just above Waynesboro, Pennsylvania, on the way back uh, to Maryland for Lee. And uh, some of the social issues about the surrender of York and the Columbia-Wrightsville Bridge and how it was uh, supposed to be detonated. And uh, it wasn't able to be detonated right at that moment. And it saved Harrisburg when Jacob Frick and Granville uh, Haller uh, set fire to it, poured oil all over the bridge, and within five minutes it was a, it was a flame. And seeing, you know, just the imagining that Confederate cavalry with the horses rearing up and not able to take uh, Philadelphia or Harrisburg from there, it's just a, a kind of a Hollywood moment. Uh, there are a lot of uh, drawings of the Wrightsville Bridge in flames, but you have a picture of your book of the bridge before. The only picture known today of it before it was torched. How'd you find it? Hard work, <laughs> doing a lot of internet searches, <laughs> uh, going through places like eBay and different things, just trying and asking all kinds of people uh, where, whether such a photo existed. And when you get a, a closed door, you go somewhere else and, and find it. That bridge was between a mile and a mile and a half long. It was the longest covered bridge in the world at that time. Made out of wood? Made out of wood. And as you can see on the side of that photo, uh, you can see where the railroad trains went along it because it couldn't go through, they wouldn't go through the covered part, obviously, or they would have set fire to 
sparks. to the covered bridge with the uh, sparks. What should people know about the surrender of York? Well, they, they were, uh, the, the leaders of the city were given a choice to pay an amount of money to the Confederate Army and they would have their city saved. And they did raise the money and did give it. And that amount of money kept the city of York from being torched. Whereas Chambers, Chambersburg was torched, uh, taken later. several times and torched. And, you know, it didn't come back. But it seemed to affect York and York County because it seems like it has pumped up uh, uh, patriotism uh, they say a lot in York County that they gave more soldiers to the efforts in World War I and II, and they're very proud of that. And I think that that has an effect when a city is surrendered, just like the South says that it's the only part of, of the United States that's known defeat. And the Chambersburg uh, burning was because the people in Chambersburg would not pay the... Would not pay. Wouldn't raise the money. They refused. There were just a few buildings saved there uh, by some good-natured... Uh, uh, Confederate officers. One, one was the Masonic Hall. Uh, it was about to be torched, and a, a, a Confederate officer who happened to be a Mason was on site. He said, you do not burn the building. It, it was one of the few out of hundreds and hundreds in town that were not burned at that, during that raid. Dave, you have a favorite off the beaten path site? Uh, yes, I think it's uh, more likely it would be the town of Fairfield, Pennsylvania. Where is that? Uh, it's about six miles west of Gettysburg. And on July 3rd, while Pickett's Charge, which we're all familiar with, was taking place in Gettysburg, there was a fight between Union and Confederate cavalry at Fairfield. And, and uh, a couple regiments of uh, Confederate cavalry and the 6th United States cavalry, a uh, regular army unit, clashed in Fairfield. And uh, the 6th U.S. was almost wiped out. They were overwhelmed. They charged several times. They were countercharged. And they lost over 200 men. They only had about 300 in the battle. And uh, the 6th U.S., again, was a regular Army unit, but they also had a couple companies from Pennsylvania. So there was a Pennsylvania connection within that unit, and uh, sort of off the beaten path, and it was, you know, a tragedy to that particular unit. And it occurred when Pickett's Charge was happening, which everybody heard of, but has heard of, but few have heard of the Battle of, of Fairfield. What's there today? Not a whole lot, really. I mean, there's... Basically, a, a route, I forget what route it is, runs through town. There's, uh, you know, some uh, buildings on each side. I believe one of the buildings that uh, the, uh, one of the killed Union officers was taken to, he's morally wounded, he died there. I believe it's still there. There's a couple markers that mark that there was a fight here, and this is what occurred. But beyond that, it, you know, you would drive through the town without really knowing anything happened. Who are some of your favorite people you came across while putting this book together? You know, we, we knew certainly a, a lot about some of the people we wanted to include, but during our research, you know, we discovered photos and then the information about a certain individual. Uh, of course, one of the photos is a photo of a, of a United States colored troop, uh, a black African-American soldier, and uh, yeah, you see these on occasion, but they're quite rare. And uh, we started doing research into the background of this man. His name is Robert Catlin. Uh, we discovered that he was from the Monongahela Valley here near Pittsburgh, south of Pittsburgh. And he joined, he fought during the war. And uh, that's about what we knew about him. But when we found out 
that he became a captain after the Civil War in the Pennsylvania National Guard, we said to ourselves, well, okay, he was called Captain Catlin, but we all knew and history knows that there were no African Americans in the Pennsylvania National Guard until after the turn of the 19th century. So was this real or not? So we began to research this man's history, and indeed in the official records of the Pennsylvania National Guard, we discovered that this man indeed raised a company for the Pennsylvania National Guard in 1870. He and two other African Americans were commissioned to captain and the two lieutenants of the unit, making them the first three African American commissioned officers in the United States, in any National Guard unit. Before we actually uh, pinned this down and proved this through, through the, you know, the original records, there were a couple other states that claimed this honor, but through, through the research and mostly through Ken's hard work uh, in, in running this, you know, running this to ground, so to speak, uh, you know, we discovered this fact, and now it's published along with an unpublished photograph for the first time in the book. Oh, you, you discovered, you broke the story? Yeah, um, but it took uh, a couple researchers. One was the chief archivist of the state, uh, Richard Saylor, helped us with the big, huge uh, adjutant general books that are handwritten and it takes two people just to carry them. I mean, the research wasn't just with us, but with uh, him and, an, and a history and museum commission worker named Bruce Bazelon that just retired. Ken, do you have a, a favorite person? I like the research and I love to do the odd or the one who is not to be a hero. And uh, I came across uh, Thomas Robinson Sharp, who's from Mount Carbon, Schuylkill County. And he, he was a railroad man and his family were railroad people. But they moved down the south and he worked for the railroad down there and was in the army under Stonewall Jackson and he masterminded the Great Train Railroad uh, raid in 1861 in which they stole 50 locomotives and 400 rail cars and dragged them over the rails and macadam roadways uh, with plow horses dragging them almost 100 miles. Who stole them? Him and, and the Confederate... Uh, the Confederacy. Confederate worker, but he was a Pennsylvanian fighting for the Confederacy. Were there many of them? There were some. Not, you know, I don't have any statistics on hand of how many, but those are the kind of stories, you know, there were some, and why would they? What well, was one of my fascinating things is why would they? And I always thought when I was young that, you know, if you were from the Union, you fought, or from the North, you fought for the Union, and South, you fought for the Confederacy. We find that isn't true. And then uh, another story was Charles Collins, who went to the Military Academy at West Point, and he, for love, fell in love with a girl from Virginia, became Colonel of the 15th Virginia Cavalry. In 1864 at Spotsylvania, he's killed, only to be found by a fellow Pittsburgher, you know, who was for the Union Army, found him and was cradling him and brought him back. I mean, those are the kind of stories. Oh, and one other story that was interesting too, a guy from Portersville, Butler County, that uh, was a farmer, but knew about fertilizer and making explosives, and went on the famous Dahlgren Kirkpatrick raid in 1864, supposedly to set free prisoners at uh, Confederate prisons. And uh, they were later caught, but he was in charge of detonating bridges and tunnels. 
And where did he get this knowledge from the farm where he learned about fertilizers and making, making explosives? When they were caught, they stripped him and he was going to be hanged. And uh, they said, he said, well, I only have my comb left. Can I keep it? And they said, yeah, we'll just get it, get it from you tomorrow after we hang you. <laughs> Actually, he never got hanged. But uh, Dahlgren, the officer Pennsylvania that he was with, supposedly in his breast pocket had orders to kill President Jefferson Davis, which is kind of history setting in that an assassination would be planned. We're not sure of this, but we think that it probably was true. Dahlgren was killed. Michael, your favorite people? I have a lot of favorite. I mean, it's hard not to look at these guys and admire them and, and you know, what they did, but I'll default back to, um, I, uh, I'm an artist as well. I do work in stone and bronze, and I was commissioned uh, about 15 years ago to do a life-size bronze statue of Strong Vincent uh, from Erie, Colonel Strong Vincent, who was the uh, at command at Gettysburg on the Little Round Top, uh, and responsible for setting the defense of, of Little Round Top and, and, and you know, saving the Union left, the left of the line. And we all have to remember that Joshua Chamberlain was under Strong Vincent. So no matter what you think of Chamberlain, we're going to look at Vincent as the man who put him there. But I, I'm talking about Vincent, but the man I admire a lot in the Vincent story is Oliver Nor Norton Wilcox. Is that, is it Oliver, Oliver, Oliver Wilcox, Wilcox Norton. Norton? I knew I was going to do that wrong. He's a tongue twister. <laughs> Um, he was, a, um, he was um, Vincent's um, standard bearer, so he rode with Vincent beside him with a flag. You know, he was always beside him, and he grew to really admire him. They were only a few years different in age. V Vincent was only 26 when he was killed. Um, so, uh, you know, here's this man, uh, Wilcox, who's riding beside him. They, they ride up to Little Round Top to scout it out. Wilcox is with the flag, and he's with the horses, and the flag's drawing fire, so... Um, Vincent tells him, you know, get that damn thing, excuse me, get that thing away from here, you know, go hide over there with that flag. So uh, Vincent's off his horse and, and the battle unfolds and Wilcox is over there uh, waiting patiently and loyally and uh, of course uh, Vincent's mortally wounded and uh, Wilcox finds him later and, and he's just heartbroken. He, he really uh, admired this man and, and looked up to him. And later, Wilcox would be the man who um, would write the book Attack and Defense of Little Round Top. He pulled every known source of every report and compared where they were and, and, and opposite, um, opposite accounts and said, well, this, this is true, this isn't true, it couldn't have happened, it could have happened. And he kind of set the tone for comparative history. He immortalized his hero. And he immortalized his hero, even naming his son uh, Strong Vincent Wilcox um, later, to which the widow, Strong Vincent's widow, gave Vincent's sword, but Wilcox said his son was not worthy of that sword and um, had the plate taken off of it and returned it to Mrs. Vincent, who then gave it to the Smithsonian, where it remains today. Who commissioned you to do a statue of Strong Vincent? Uh, the um, Strong Vincent uh, uh, Memorial Committee. It was a, a committee uh, uh, created to um, bring attention to Strong Vincent in Erie. Uh, and uh, I, I created it you know, with their input and um, Sits outside the Blasco Library. Yeah, Blasco Memorial. Near Library. the Brig Niagara. Yeah. yeah. I walked past that statue on Tuesday. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's mine. That's your statue. That's mine. That's Mike's yeah. statue. How yeah. long ago did you make it? Uh, 97, I think we dedicated it. So I made it in the year 1996. I, I sculpted it in 96. What's involved in making a statue like that? It's well, made out of bronze? Yes, it's bronze, yeah. Solid? First, 
Uh, no, they're all bronzes are hollow. Hmm. They appear solid, but they're about a quarter of an inch thick. Otherwise, they'd be, they'd, I mean, they weigh a ton already, but they would be, and then there's cooling issues and shrinkage and all that. Um, what's involved is getting every known photograph of Vincent, which there are maybe four, and combining those, looking to interpret him, picking the moment that, of the story, interpreting the moment. I chose the moment when he's standing on the rock at Little Round Top with his wife's riding crop. Um, you know, he, the, his line started to collapse and he jumped up on this rock and you know, nobody's gonna pass me and he was directing the battle with his riding crop and he was mortally wounded in the groin. Um, so I wanted that, you know, he's on there with his crop looking maybe at the man who's aiming at him that, that, that second in time. And then I, I make it in clay, I make a large uh, life-size statue in clay from, from which molds are taken, a wax is poured, uh, wax is invested in plaster, it's melted out, and then bronze is poured in that. It's a complicated process in many parts. You don't pour it all in one part. But Do you actually get involved with the melted bronze? I, I, I don't. I, I help with the mold making and I help touch up waxes, but um, that's all a process that's done by people who are much more expert at it than I. You, they're technicians and artists in their own right, so I, I hire a foundry that, that does that. Is that considered a, a lucrative commission? I mean, a, a, oh, yeah. Do you, yeah. How often do you, are there other statues that you've yeah. done around Pennsylvania people might um, see? I have a Holocaust statue here in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm working on a statue for the town of um, Kinsman, Ohio, of the two founders. They're dressed in 1850s clothing, uh, life-size bronze. I have, um, uh, I, I haven't even thought of these in a while. A couple Civil War statues. I have one in New Jersey, another one in Ohio, a World War I in Ohio. Is that your full-time job? I'm a curator at Soldiers and Sailors Museum. It's my full-time job now. Uh, I couldn't make a good enough living. I mean, I'm giving you all this, you know, how, how lucrative and everything, but commissions sometimes are years apart, so it's really hard to make a living, but I enjoy being, I'm at a military muse museum, and I'm the, uh, the uh, curator of that collection. How long did it take you to make that statue from the time they said, okay, you're, you're From the, the first conversation to the day you put in was almost three years. So, but it actually took to render it about seven or eight months to make the clay and then turn it over to the foundry, which takes another eight or nine months to make. How long will it realistically last? Forever, unless the earth temperature becomes uh, <laughs> 1,500 <laughs> degrees or whatever melting temperature is for bronze. Bronze is pretty indestructible. It just will not break. That's, it's, it's indestructible. And, and where again is that statue? Glasgow Memorial Library, right on the uh, waterfront at, in Erie, where the Brig Niagara is, and the, they have a, a, a waterfront hotel there now. There's a big development right, right at that point. Ken Turner, uh, what do you do when you're not writing books? Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a funeral director by trade, and uh, my family owns funeral homes. And uh, I write, I was involved in the Time Life series uh, on the Civil War, and, uh, West Virginia University graduate and master's and worked in the Regional History Center there and did two books on West Virginia and the Civil War and stolen elections in West Virginia. What keeps you interested in the Civil War? Oh, it never, never yeah. stops. Mike says it's like an addiction. It is. Worse <laughs> <than> <laughs> Dave said he had been to Gettysburg over a hundred times. How many times have you been there? Not that many. <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't think more than 40, 50. I, I guess probably more than that. Oh yeah, you, you they <laughs> think about it. We, right, yeah. we go three four times or five. a year, three, four times a year. I never numbered them. I'm sorry. Do you have favorite spots there, or, or if someone has never been there? What oh, he they said about see? you know his dad. I said oh, I remember the Charlie Weaver Museum, and when we were young, my dad taking me on one of the few times we could go on a vacation 
a funeral director didn't get very many, and uh, he took me down there, and you could go to Charlie Weaver's. They had a barrel with the mini ball bullets, and the first reach in for a little boy was free. And, you, you know, you grab as many as you could and, you know, try to sneak them, you know. And, uh, you know, after that, they were a dime for every handful, you know. So, it, it, you know, it gets your interest when you're a kid. What's the Charlie Weaver Museum? Charlie Weaver, they, uh, used to be in Median? Hollywood Squares. Mm -hmm. and, uh, he had a where did he have he had a museum? museum uh, I think it, it was on Steinweir well, Avenue. Or the, the Baltimore Pike. Baltimore yeah. Street. In Gettysburg? In yeah. Gettysburg. Yeah. Isn't it, um, right that was his interest. Hill. Is the it's old the orphanage. He's real good yeah. at painting Next the little the soldiers. Orphanage. Yeah, yeah. he did little collection. miniature soldiers. That yeah. was his big hobby. And, yeah. you know, I think he was related to the Weavers of the Civil War in the Gettysburg. I don't know. Michael, your trips to Gettysburg? Hundreds. Um, hundreds and I'm a reenactor too so yeah. since 1967 I've been going to reenact maybe one or two a year at Gettysburg plus the historical trips I taught um, for a semester at Gettysburg College so I lived there um, and so, uh, often driving there I'll think how many times have I been been on this road how many times have I been on the road to Gettysburg I worked on the Gettysburg movie um, it's hundreds of times. We like yeah. it in the winter time yeah, and the winter, things like that. I mean, yeah. different times of the year. It's so different. It's nice to see it with all the without yeah. all the tourists sometimes. Yeah. Well, in the time we have left, I have a lot of markers in the book here about things to talk about, and we've hardly touched on all of them. So, if you don't mind, I want to just pull out some random topics and get you to talk about them. Uh, the Christiana. You have a photograph of the Christiana riot. Mm -hmm. What should people know about that? Well, that's about. Uh, slavery and uh, Pennsylvania was at the forefront of uh, abolishing slavery early they had an act of gradual abolishment of slavery early and this would have solved the problem if the nation would have gone about the same way but you know different parts of the country were tearing each other apart with this thing and Pennsylvania as usual was the compromise and uh, in Christiana, Christiana uh, the rioting there is what was the what we call the precursor of the actual Civil War because they had passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 which would require northern people to aid in slaveholders bringing their slaves back to the south and this went against everything that Pennsylvania had in its legislation and uh, they weren't going to do it but uh, this was federal law now as such and Edward Gorsuch was on the trail of a couple slaves that had escaped from Maryland and him and his son enlisted a federal marshal and another marshal to help him in a town of Christiana in Lancaster County and uh, it was actually a free black that was in there named Willie Parker who was probably holding uh, or uh, uh, hospitable or keeping them in the house and they surrounded the house and a lot of uh, verbal accusations went back and forth with the marshal demanding that they give up the slaves and uh, sh soon shots were fired and it was after that Gorsuch is killed his son very badly injured uh, they brought the, they tried to catch the slaves themselves but they had escaped to New York and then on to Canada but they put a couple people on trial and then grabbed almost every African-American they could find in Lancaster County and tried to try them too Pennsylvania jury quickly uh, found them innocent and set them free. 
And at that point, we say, the South realized that even with federal law on their side, that this was not going to work, that they couldn't go about this that way. This was in 1851, so it's... I don't know who to address each of these topics to, so I'll just do a jump ball. The Irish Brigade. Yes. That's Michael. That's me. He portrays that. <laughs> That's, a, That's my reenacting, reenacting unit is an Irish Brigade unit. But uh, you're looking at the, uh, the Philadelphia Brigade, uh, which is the... 71st, 72nd, um, and the 109th Pennsylvania. Is that, is that the whole what brigade? 106. 106. 69th. Yeah. 69th is the Irish unit that's at the angle. They have an Irish flag with a harp, uh, Irish commanders, um, uh, and uh, um, they play a very pivotal part in that, in that uh, repulse of the. Um, of the Pickett's Charge. And, and I also noticed, you're looking at the poster, that's a very early war poster for what, what they're calling the Irish Brigade. It's not the same Irish Brigade we're familiar with from New York, the 69th, 88th, 63rd, um, 28th Mass. Uh, but, you know, brigades were um, amalgamations of, of companies and whatever, and they often used ethnic um, uh, uh, cues to kind of bring them together, and, and uh, Mulligan was using Irish Brigade as, as, it was never raised, that particular unit was never raised, is that right? Um, and and uh, it, 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 is, it is an interesting poster, and it talk, speaks about the very beginning of the war and the ethnic affiliations. Well, why would an Irish immigrant have enlisted in the Union Army? I mean, you think they'd say, I don't have a dog in that hunt. Yeah, well, well, they be, it's an opportunity for, to prove themselves, to, to, prove, to get citizenship, invest in the country. Working conditions weren't so great. It was a job, a place to get employment and uh, three square meals, send money home. Um, and uh, I think they really looked at it as their adopted land. You know, I, I, a lot of Irish came to uh, the United States at different immigration ways for different reasons, but most were oppressed and they came here to you know, get out of that oppression, and they were grateful to be here and wanted to fight for the North, and there were Irish on the South and the Southern side that fought for the South as well. Uh, you have a picture in here of uh, Lincoln on the day of the Gettysburg Address. Is that, is that one of yours? Yes, certainly. Uh, <laughs> Your turn. Well, that photo was taken on November 19th, 1863. Uh, that was the day that Lincoln gave his Gettysburg Address, his immortal, what became the immortal Gettysburg Address. And uh, that's taken uh, near Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg. And he's in a throng of thousands of people. And you can just barely see his head in, in the midst of that throng of people. But he's, he's definitely there. We know that's Abraham Lincoln. And uh, that photo was taken by an anonymous photographer. Nobody's exactly sure who took it. There's guesses, but you know, there's no written documentation who, who exactly took that photograph. So it is, it is very famous. It shows him delivering the Gettysburg Address. And uh, it's just the kind of photo, photo that, that we wanted in our book. It's been seen before, but it needs to be in a book about Pennsylvania and the Civil War. You also have a picture of the uh, Lincoln funeral train in front of the train station in Harrisburg. That's right. Right. When he was assassinated in April of 1865, there was a long procession of his body being taken uh, back home to Springfield, Illinois, where it was interred. And uh, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia uh, were two of the stops. And at each stop, uh, photographs were taken of, of the hearse and the, and the, uh, the train that was carrying uh, the Lincoln casket. And uh, so this, you know, this proceeds all along the track, all the way back to Springfield, Illinois. And uh, we're lucky that, again, photographs were taken in both Harrisburg and Philadelphia. 
And uh, you have a section of the book on the, the sanitary fairs. Mm -hmm. What? It's a, a bad word for us today. Odd name for it. <laughs> yeah, odd name You would for want us it to today. be sanitary, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, there, it was a grassroots movement, uh, basically, to provide. It was seen early on that conditions in camp were, were less than perfect. Horses were, uh, you know, stationed near water supplies. Uh, men would use the latrines. They, they would use the closest spot. So um, it, w it was seen that th these unsanitary conditions uh, were bad for men's health and the health of the Army and the fighting force. Um, but the Army really wasn't prepared to do much more than relocate camps or lay them out better. But it was a grass movement, roots movement from home to provide uh, bandage kits, comfort kits, uh, food, uh, socks, better blankets, make sure men had medical supplies. And this was called, uh, the, there was a commission called the U.S. Sanitary Commission that was charged, uh, even was given uh, the right by Congress to enter camps and be the, the funnel to get these things passed through. And it was a very big idea. And by 1864, the idea of sanitary fairs emerged, and there were two in Pennsylvania. These were like gigantic county fairs where you'd walk in and see, you know, the best produce, the biggest cow, uh, historical artifacts, things from the war, but the purpose was to raise a lot of money to funnel back in again for supplies, medical things, and uh, it was the beginning of, um, of like a, the, the woman's movement because women really took charge of some of these fairs and movements and, and became politically active and uh, some of the earlier early supporters became suffragettes and you know it, it has a pathway. We're just about out of time and Dave I didn't ask you what you're doing, what you do when you're not writing history books. Well, I'm the uh, publisher of Military Images Magazine. And uh, Military Images was founded back in 1979, and I've been the publisher since 2004. And uh, during those years, we've published thousands and thousands of unseen, unpublished, just fantastic photos. Uh, probably 80% of those are Civil War photographs. Uh, the magazine covers the period of 1840 with basically the first photographs through about 1920. But we focus on Civil War photographs. So on a daily basis, I'm inundated with photographs, submissions. People find new photographs and want to submit them for publication. So uh, like an earlier question, like uh, the question you asked earlier about, do we see new things all the time? Well, I see them daily, weekly, when new photographs are found or discovered or new information is found about them. Unfortunately, uh, the conduit to publish uh, these photographs is, is a magazine like my, like the one that I published in Military Images. If people want to find out more about that magazine, how do they find it? Well, uh, I have a website, certainly, uh, www.civilwar-photos.com, and they can simply go there and, uh, you know, there's several pages about Civil War photography, some articles uh, that, uh, that are drawn from the magazine that, that folks can read, and, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly the place to start. Well, after all these years of you three working together to put this book together, are you eager to do another one, or did you learn your lesson from this? <laughs> I think we'd like to do another yeah, one. Yeah, we would like to do that. We, yeah. we yeah. can't possibly have told the story with just this. We have so much. Yeah, there are hundreds of sources at our fingertips, letters, diaries, uh, unpublished accounts. That's what we'd like to focus more on and give it more room and to grow and flesh. We'll have to end it on that note. Our guests have been Michael Krauss. Ken Turner and Dave Neville, and they are the authors of this book, The Civil War in Pennsylvania, A Photographic History. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. 
Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.